What's up, gang? Today is, let's see, Monday, March 9th. I'm saying Monday. Today is Wednesday, March 9th, uh, 2016. Thank you for joining me. This is the Promotional More Practice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. I hope the signal... Let's, let's, let's try this one more time, shall we? Since I botched this like a clown off the beginning. Today is Wednesday, March 9th, 2016. This is the Promotional More Practice live chat. My name is Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. Today on the chat, on the podcast... We'll talk about UFC 196. We'll get to what's next for Conor McGregor, next for Holly Holm, next for the UFC generally as we get into April, May, June, and July. Um, and, of course, whatever you want to talk about. 90 minutes of your questions and comments. Best place to get them in is going to be on MMAfighting.com's comment section where this window is embedded. By the way, if you're watching this now, please give it a thumbs up, share it, and like it. That would be so kind of you. Um, subscribe to the podcast, iTunes.com slash promotional malpractice. You can find everything you need there. And uh, yeah, if you got any other questions beyond what I've introduced, of course, the floor is yours. So best place to do that, of course, like I mentioned, MMA fighting, or you can get at me on Twitter uh, at SBN Luke Thomas. So without further ado, let's get this started. Let's see how it looks. It's a little choppy, isn't it? A little bit choppy, but all right, let's see. The rise of upsets in MMA. Luke, it's no secret major upsets of prominent fighters are starting to become much more common than they were in the past. Uh, it seems to have begun when Anthony Pettis and Carla Esparza both lost their titles at 185 in early 2015. Since then, dominant fighters like Cain Velasquez, Ronda Rousey, Chris Weidman, Jose Aldo, Holly Holm, and Conor McGregor have all lost in dominant fashion to their opponents. In the past, the champion was expected to be a figure of consistent dominance among their division but never before have there been so many champions dethroned than there are now. Question, is the loss of multiple champions a direct result of high-level competition being produced by a rapidly evolving sport? Boy, what a great and interesting question. And there's really going to be a lot of different answers here, I think, depending on your perspective, right? So we've talked about on the, on the uh, in the past, I feel like there is a growing consensus about what best practices generally need to be in MMA, and at least among the elite competitors, those best practices have been disseminated more often and more quickly um, than ever. So guys are getting better. So this is tilting me. Guys are getting better faster than they used to. That's one consideration. The other one is that some of this was simply promotional hype. That you know we had these outsized expectations of some of these guys and ladies that wasn't deserved. And so when that comes crashing back down to reality, we're forced to reconsider. Um, you know, whether we promoted them or talked about them in ways that were really truly accurate. That's another. Three, um, it's not quite true. We don't have that going on still today. I believe John Jones would fit that mold that you're talking about. You're talking about these guys like St. Pierre, like Jones, like Silva, uh, you know, at least, you know, Silva's 16 unbeaten streak, 16 uh, fight unbeaten streak with these guys that were essentially hugely dominant figures in their divisions for long periods of time. They were consistently winning for long stretches. And of course, you know, we all know GSP had a couple of setbacks, but not really. He basically um, beat everyone he was supposed to. So we don't quite have that as much today, but we certainly have some of that with John Jones. I think another part is we just, there's just a lot of parody right now between guys. Um, you know, Rockhold might be better than Weidman. Weidman might be better than Rockhold, but not by huge degrees. You know, when you would, when you would match up St. Pierre in his heyday with everyone who was there, 
there were guys like Koscheck in his prime where you thought maybe his wrestling might give him some problems and it didn't. Um, or maybe guys like Sarah, you know, who had big power, but essentially just didn't have the crispness that he needed to to land. But I, I remember pretty distinctly, and, and again, Anderson Silva, this was a bigger problem too, because you would say, oh, his wrestling's not that great and his um, jiu-jitsu was okay, but not amazing. Um, and eventually his jiu-jitsu became pretty good and then his defensive wrestling got a lot better. But neither here nor there. You know, look, having those transcendent figures in those divisions is not going to happen regularly. The fact that we had St. Pierre and Silva at roughly the same time, I think we'll look back on historically as something being, you know, relatively, um, relatively rare to have two dominant figures like that. And then, you know, Penn was you know, semi-dominant, not quite to the same exact way that uh, St. Pierre and Silva were in their primes, but that was a little aberrant, I feel like. Um, you're not going to see that very often. It's not, again, I, I think you're discounting what Jones is doing, but nevertheless, um, it, it's not happening quite as often with as many guys as transcendent in their weight classes, but it does still happen. Um, and some of these guys, you know, look, they're not the same as they used to be. Cain Velasquez's career has been incontestably affected by injuries. That doesn't mean he can't be champion again, but it certainly means he's probably not the same guy that he used to be on, in some capacity or another. Um, some of the other ones we had just hyped too much. Carla Esparza, maybe. Certainly Anthony Pettis, I'm guilty of that. Jose Aldo's gotten older. He's not the same guy he used to be, I think. You can certainly say that as well. So, And Ronda Rousey was very, very good, but we there just wasn't... She has such a dominating way to compete, but that dominating way to compete in some ways, I think you can go back and you can say masked some of her liabilities um, because there were there for someone else to exploit them, but we had such little tape on her that we never really got a chance to fully appreciate that um, before home ripped the whole thing apart and let us know what exactly was going on. That doesn't take away all of her previous wins or the things she's very, very good at. It just means it laid bare all the things she was bad at. She was getting away with them because no one could really make her pay for it. Um, and so this created this outsized personality and this outsized person who can compete. You know, we'll see what happens with Jones. Maybe he loses to Cormier and we have to revisit this conversation more directly. I don't think it's a bad question at all. I think there are some explanations for it. Um, but I think the only issue I would have is that we shouldn't romanticize the past too much, appreciate it for how unique it was that Silva and St. Pierre were doing that at the same time, but that it's not completely gone today. And there might be some other factors, including promotional hype, injuries, people changing, um, that creates this at this feeling that no one could say at the top but certainly you're right like there's no denying there's a lot of parody at the top these days you know Verdum, i expect him to win against kane velasquez again but i'm not like ultra confident about it i'm not ultra confident he's gonna i mean he probably is gonna beat steve Miocic, but i don't know like it's not it's not like when saint pierre fought um i don't know i i thought saint pierre was gonna win hand league and shields but you know shields makes it tough to win um you know hughes the second time they fought, you know, I just knew St. Pierre was going to tear through him. There was really very little doubt about that, whatever the odds must have said at the time. So uh, I just don't get the same feeling with these guys. I get the sense that one person edges the other. And, you know, last thing I'll say about this, and we'll move on because I know there's a bunch of questions. There's a weird thing that I've been noticing guys get in their life. They'll get these certain moments where the whole time a guy is competing, if he's elite, he's probably getting better in some capacity. Sometimes he's getting better faster than other times. Sometimes he's getting better slowly or, you know, not really noticeable, but, you know, he's probably getting better at certain things. But then there are these moments where you look back and you say, wow, this guy really had this explosion of growth in a technical way. Um, 
for Doom the last few years. Like all the things he's been working on really came together. Dos Anjos is that way too. And can you attribute that to King's MMA? Maybe so. Rafael Cordero, maybe so. Um, you know, I felt like Luke Rockhold turned a corner in the last couple of years. And he's been getting better for a while. I needed to prove it. But, um, you know, Max Holloway in the last couple of years, I mean, really putting it all, since that McGregor fight, really putting it all together. Um, and I think that's creating these moments where as soon as you think one guy's ahead, boom, here comes this other one surging through with this, with this individual personal growth spurt that, that really off balances our understanding of what's happening. I think that's really a component as well. Um, another question about Romero and his tainted supplements. Are you telling me that in the year 2016, a professional athlete in the UFC can't take the relevant steps to either declare or test 10 supplements once a month in order to preserve his career? Yes, that's, that is exactly what I'm telling you. If it were that easy, they'd be doing it, but they're not. I think you overestimate the amount of attention fighters pay to that stuff. All right, good question here. Connor's weight. It's been said that uh, McGregor's extra weight was a big factor in him gassing so early, suggesting that he's put on a huge amount of mass since the Aldo fight. However, according to John Cavanaugh, a fully hydrated Connor weighs approximately 165 on a featherweight fight night. And last Friday at the weigh-ins, fully hydrated, he weighed 168. So it seems pretty clear that he fought Diaz with only three to say five additional pounds. This is a lot for someone his size. It's nowhere near the 20 pounds that some people seem to have gained. From everything I've read, it's only possible to put on one to two pounds of muscle per month and slightly less than what if you've already been training intensively for several years, blah, 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 blah. What are your thoughts? Am I missing something here? As far as I can see, the main difference between him fighting at featherweight and lightweight, welterweight, is that he doesn't have to kill himself during the fight week and that ultimately fights at about the same weight in each division. I think it's a, it's a question of what is the mass composed of. Um, is the mass composed of functional weight? How used to his body is it? He was probably dieting himself and training in ways to preserve a certain size rather than trying to narrow everything down so that if, you know when you rehydrate, you're certainly at that upper end, but you're, what you're really doing is you're trying, I mean, to make, for him to make featherweight, there's a certain amount of deprivation involved. Right, there's a nutrient deprivation. There is maybe not a training training deprivation, but there is um, some kind of sacrifices made, or you know, some kind of increase in challenges made to make his body smaller, preserving all the things he needs to for athletic performance to the extent possible. But there is a deprivation involved. There wasn't deprivation involved in this time, and you know, I had Joe Lozano on my radio show, and he was making a point that. Going up in weight, even 10 pounds, this takes months to get used to, for your body to get used to that weight. The idea that he was, A, going to be able to do it and retain all his power at 155 was a little bit silly, and then he could do it by July for welterweight was really crazy. You know, Lazar was thinking July for lightweight, and then maybe December or early 2017 for welterweight that it would really take this kind of graduated time to slowly put on the muscle mass, which both works to Connor's uh, benefit, really. Because I asked him the question, I thought his response was really interesting. I asked him, you know, look, he only fought one guy at welterweight. He fought Nate Diaz. Can we really uh, affirmatively conclude his power doesn't translate up there? Well, we can conclude it didn't translate in that fight. Pretty clearly, the power was strong. It hurt Diaz. It you know cut him up real bad, but it didn't. It wasn't enough to put him away. And once the power went away, the rest of his game went away. Okay, so it didn't work in that fight. But I think, uh, and I don't want to speak for him here, but certainly my impression, my 
recollection of what Lausanne said was, well, it's one guy, one guy with a pretty good chin, not the most amazing, you know, can't be put down with a shot ever kind of chin, but pretty good. Like Nate Diaz is, is, is can take a shot and there's that. And moreover, his body never settled into that weight. You know, you give him until December or even January of next year, if he was really, truly serious about slowly adding the weight in a way that made sense. And you might see that his power does, in fact, translate that high. It's not It's not clear that, I mean, it's not a guarantee that it would, even if he took those steps. But until he takes those steps, it's it's, it's much harder to know for sure. Um, and so, so to your point, you know, it, was there an aggregate difference in weight tremendously from when he competes at featherweight versus... Uh, this, uh, you know, no, it obviously mathematically is not a huge difference. To, so I cannot dismiss your point at all. Uh, it, it may well, in fact, be very valid. Um, but um, to me, it, it's it's just not exactly clear how much it all played a role. Shout out to, by the way, the guys at the um, Co-Main Event Podcast, Chad Dundas and Ben Folks, who I think made a point pretty similar to this one, which was everyone wants this weight to be a definitive decider one way or the other. Right, so Connor's defenders want him to say, "Look, he jumped up this huge amount of weight. He really was not accustomed to it, and it backfired." Okay, fair enough, but that's really what the culprit is here. And there's people like this that want to say, "Look, I mean, what really is the difference in weight between what he normally competes at and this? Not a whole lot. We can't really rely on weight at all." And their point was, it's probably somewhere in the middle, and it's kind of hard to decipher based on this really limited sample set. And I, I think that's true. I think that there is. Here's what I, here's the way I look at it personally. Calling this a welterweight fight to me seems very disingenuous. I don't, I mean, technically it was, but I don't really, uh, I don't really treat it as such. To me, I treat it much more in my mind like a lightweight fight uh, with, you know, with some obvious differences. Um, but I do think there is something to the idea that he was probably training differently. He was feeding himself differently. He had different expectations about it. Um, and he just didn't calibrate it correctly because it's too hard to do in that short amount of time. So it's probably somewhere in the middle, but I do think it's worth noting. Your point is well taken. That you know, should we look at this and say, "Well, this is this is a weight issue of being so so far outside the norm of his normal proportions that he simply couldn't handle it, like he was carrying a fifty pound backpack or something through a through a mile race?" Uh, no, it's not quite like that. And then, of course, everyone's going to debate about his weight in the comment section. So it says Connor is 174 today. Diego Sanchez, I guess, had tweeted that. Logically, he would be 180 for lightweight. There's a lot going on. Let's see. Someone says the main issue is size is a major advantage for Connor and a major factor for his wins at featherweight. Size advantage shouldn't be able to be manipulated so extremely. One, the highlights the this highlights the need for dangerous and drastic cuts should be lessened, if not eliminated. And two, good luck to Frankie, though still waiting for McGregor to drop back down to defend his belt. Um. Yeah, interestingly, uh, okay. McGregor's gas tank. Joe Lazan put out a video before 196, and he pretty much nailed it right. Um. He's, now, now I realize that McGregor was throwing bombs, but he did the same against Holloway and seemed to have no issues despite the injury halfway through. Shouldn't you have more energy without a weight cut? 
And a somewhat related follow-up, how closely linked is their cardio to a fighter's chin? It seems that fighters like the Diaz boys and Frankie Edgar are capable of taking inhuman amounts of damage. Well, a cut can affect your chin, right? So um, two different ways. One, when your brain has been deprived of water and it, it takes uh, a shot of damage, it doesn't handle it the same way as before. You know, I'm sure Cody Garbrandt, a known hard hitter, um, you know, when he hit Tenkinu, I'm sure he hit him super hard. Don't, I am not. I am not saying otherwise, but when I saw that fight, I really, I really wondered how much Tankino's weight cut affected his ability to take that shot. You know, the guys who take a big uh, weight cut, they don't have the same ability to take a shot to the head as they do um, guys who haven't at least that much, generally speaking. The other part is a weight cut just tires you generally. When it tires you generally, it tires your offense, but that's not why he got hit. I mean, he got hit because he got tired, yes. And and the the check hooks that we went over in the Monday morning analyst and the jabs to the body and the jabs to the face, these all contributed. But it just seemed like there was no one moment where you saw McGregor exert a bunch of energy. There was a break in the action. You saw him huffing and puffing, and then you were like, aha. He, you know, there was those wheel kicks he was throwing for no apparent reason and all of that. My pointing out, it was just a slow decline. And who knows why exactly in terms of the the – biomechanics of it, the natural biology of it, the way in which, again, he sort of provided nutrients for himself, whatever the case may be. There's there's probably a lot of unknowns we don't know. We're all discussing these sort of public terms of the debate without without really knowing if there's any other private issues. Again, I'm not saying injury per se, but you know, I really do wonder how he, as another thing to think about, among others, how he fed himself and whether that was a, that was done well. Um, when you cut weight, you're you're very much scientific about what you can and can't put out. There's a lot of thought going into putting up screens to make sure that if you ingest it, it has you know the requisite amount of calories, but no more. It's really the right amount of nutrients, but no more, and the right amount of weight intake, uh, water intake, but no more. Um, I don't think that going through a en- uh, weight cut makes you have more energy. But if you're going through a weight cut, you're probably in a place where you're being much more disciplined generally about identifying the things that can affect your weight negatively. It seems like he wasn't doing that here, both in terms of what he was put, either putting in his body or the way in which he was managing his training around it, you know, um, because we've definitely all seen him with more energy than this. And a somewhat related follow-up, how closely linked is their cardio to a fighter's chin? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, Right. But, you know, when, he, when Diaz landed that one-two, we went over this in the Monday Morning Analyst. McGregor never keeps his hands here. He never looks over his guard, ever. Certainly not on that night. What he does is he might parry a shot, but only if he's moving forward to tamp your hand down to either throw a counter or, um, you know, th- find a, a, a lane for the left hand. All his defense in that fight came from slipping and then bobbing and weaving and trunk movement. That's it. There wasn't a lot of blocking, blocking and parrying here and then circling out and resetting the position very carefully. It was very much about these. And that was the other part about it. Like everyone was like, well, he didn't manage the weight properly. Okay. He threw big shots against Chad Mendez, but he was throwing these monster punches on Nate Diaz, these huge extensions of the left and these winding uppercuts. And sometimes they landed and sometimes they didn't. And then you had in those wheel kicks. It was really a combination of things. What was his weight really like in terms of his body composition? Did he really provide himself with the proper nutrients? Um, to what extent was this just, you know, why was he wasting his motion on wheel kicks that were not even coming close to landing? And these huge, like he was leaving his feet. And you saw me in the Monday morning analyst. There's a point, I think, at like 139 in the first round. 
he's literally throwing these major punches as he walks in stride. You know, just these this constant use of ineffective. Um, um, just there was not an economy of motion with his punches. There wasn't an economy of motion to his strikes and his movement generally. For a guy who's been doing movement drills and movement, the kind of thing he's talking about has a lot of different ancillary purposes, you know. Um, but you know, for a guy who has vaunted movement and really unexpected striking, I thought a lot of his stuff was really p- predictable. Like when he went over, he leaned to the right. He was always on the overhand left. He leaned to the left. He was always digging the rear hand uppercut, all, all centered on that left hand side. You know, it's no coincidence that from here, Diaz came out of that fight looking like Harvey Dent, um, because all the offense was just on one side of his face. You know, it was that, that that was it. Um, so it was just not a great fight for McGregor. It just a lot of things weren't coming together for him there uh, that I didn't see. I thought for a guy who, because what what were we saying about McGregor before the fight? Like he's one of these guys that has a tremendous ability for self insight, for for really feeling how he you know paying attention to the way he feels, understanding his body, and then tailoring the training and everything else around that to maximize use of it seems like you that that somewhere along the line that didn't come together for this fight um and it'll be interesting to see in the months ahead what exactly that was and how he'll look again when he goes back to 145 again it's not that the cut to 145 is good for him it's that if he has to cut to 145 he's got to pay he's got to go through everything that he does from his training to his sleep to his diet to everything with a fine-tooth comb sounds like he didn't have that fine-tooth comb this time the end of Muay Thai. Uh, let's see. Look, not so long ago, Muay Thai was considered to be the holy grail of striking in MMA. In 2016, however, the sport seems to be slowly trading in flat-footed power striking for boxing-oriented fundamentals such as timing, footwork, and movement. The best Muay Thai-style fighters like Anderson Silva, Jose Aldo, Henan Barrao, who were once the top of the pound-for-pound rankings, have all fallen to a newer generation. Fighters who incorporate distance and footwork seem to be leading the forefront of MMA striking, such as Mighty Mouse, Dillashaw, Cruz, Edgar, Wonderboy, and Rockhold. Question, what is the future of Muay Thai and MMA in your opinion? So I really would really encourage you, again, self-plug, but it's real. I would really encourage you to please check out the... Um, technique talk i did with brandon gibson these are not anything i said it's all about what he says so don't go for me go for him of course um i asked him about this explicitly not so much its future role exactly but what was what is the enduring contribution of muay thai to mma well as you mentioned before a lot of guys have used it to become very proficient and effective strikers in mixed martial arts you know really seizing upon leg attacks i think is a big contribution from them not that the guys in thai boxing are the only ones that did it but we can pretty much trace how leg kicks got into MMA from that and Luta Livre and everything else. Um, so there's that. Uh, really, the, the clinch position is still very needed and effective, um, and no one really does that better for striking purposes. You know, you can have you know Greco clinch, of course, but no one really does that better than than Thai boxing. Their clinch is obviously just phenomenal. All the lessons in there, turning and pulling and twisting and and redirecting energy and and just what it can do to someone's neck and back and obviously to any f- shots you fire up the gut and everything else. It's 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 a tremendous weapon, and they really have contributed that. And, and that I, I don't see that changing really anytime soon, um, stylistically. Uh, and then of course also involves clinch breaking skills too, right? So there's that as well. But, you know, Brendan Gibson identified some just problems with it. The stance necessary for it really makes you susceptible to all kinds of different attacks, um, both striking and uh, the wrestling variety. 
Um, it, there's just some, there's just some concepts around Thai boxing that are created for the realities of how Thai boxing work and the specificities of their rules and fighting surface that really just don't have any longer a, a, a application um, to MMA. You know, when you've got a guy like TJ Dillashaw who is switching stances in the middle of a combination, um, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to plant on that rear leg and, and then bop the, the one up front up and down, up and down, up and down. Um, that doesn't mean there's that Thai boxing is ineffective. I just feel like um, got, MMA is beginning to create its own form of striking because of the rules and because of the open surface area, how it's hard to cor- corral and corner a guy because of the nature of the gloves, right? I think all of those things are creating this um, style central to MMA that you, that I don't know, you could take back to boxing or take back to MMA. Uh, it wouldn't translate the other way, you know, cause it's really designed for that. Um, and that's, and that's, I think that's really the crux of the issue. Um, the question is, is there ever going to be something that replaces jujitsu's role in grappling? Hard to see that at this point, if for no other reason, then no one knows what else to teach. But I wonder if in a few years we might see a mode of grappling, and we'll just call it that for now, that obviously incorporates a lot of fundamentals from jujitsu, but really is so MMA specific that it winds up being very, very effective in MMA. You couldn't take it back to jujitsu, but it would still be um, really useful for grappling context in MMA. And I think to some extent, maybe you do. We've, many guys have already adapted jujitsu from gi to no gi, and then from no gi to MMA no gi, and there's all these differences. But I mean, a really coherent, identifiable system that people were able to um, train and teach and call something, right? Give it a name. Um, you might see that, and we're not that far with striking either in terms of that kind of development. There's no new kind of striking we can put a name on it. We're just sort of noticing that some of these precepts of balance and stance and what they offer, the cost-benefit re- you know, analysis and the reward there is not what it used to be. And so as a consequence, guys are making changes. But this all seems very inevitable to me, right? You introduce something, everyone's going to get good at it, get used to it, and then someone's going to begin to change and adapt. And, and I think some of those adaptations were just sort of slight at first, you know, small concentric circle around the base. But now those concentric circles of outside, I mean, how much it borrows are getting further and further away. And that's sort of the space where that we're in today, at least in striking grappling. Um, I'm not sure exactly what to say about where we are because jujitsu is so, such a commercial enterprise intertwined with MMA that it's a little bit different than um, the way Thai boxing is. But we'll see. And again, this is also not to say that, th- that there are Thai boxers who couldn't come over and just, you know, if they really knew jujitsu and, and wrestling, defensive wrestling, they couldn't come over and just wreck people. It's not saying that at all. It's just saying that if you're looking for advantages, what are you going to do? Train the exact same thing that everyone else is training or take a lot of the really beneficial functional elements of that and then begin to put on these, you know, you want a striking style, it seems like an MMA today, that borrow certain precepts. Maybe you, maybe you borrow the clinch um, position from Thai boxing, but you really borrow a lot of boxing style uh, footwork and movement and angle, angling and pivoting, right? You get a lot of that from boxing. You want something that, when you look at it, only your fingerprint works on the scanner. That's what you want. You're the only guy who can do that because if anyone else has it, well, they can all do it. And even in Thai boxing, everyone's going to have their own style. Everyone in jiu-jitsu has their own style. But there can be a lot of these you know, um, similar s- modes that a lot of people fit into. And I think what guys are trying to find is that individualization that you know 
can be uh, observed but not really mimicked. Uh, with Dos Anjos, let's see. Or tweeting me about Thai restaurants in Washington D.C. Uh, all right, was Dos Anjos the biggest loser of the night? That might have been Dos Anjos. Dos Anjos is only big payday. MMA is a crazy sport. For all we know, he ends up losing his next fight and fades into a journeyman role. Do you think he ended up losing around two million for that fight? Basically, life changing money. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I don't know if he's going to get that big fight. You see him angling now for Lawler at um, UFC 200, maybe he'll get it. I, I don't suspect that he will. He, there, there's, I mean, you could make the argument that it would be compelling to see champion versus champion as it was McGregor versus Dos Anjos, but I think more people at this point would be organically interested in seeing Nate Diaz take that on um, for Robbie Lawler than, than vice versa. I'm not saying that fight meritocratically makes the most sense. I am not arguing that. I'm sure every real welterweight contender would say, time out, why are we doing this? Fine. I wouldn't suggest otherwise, but um, yeah, I uh, I don't know. That's a tough one, man. Not, I mean, will he have a big fight again? What if you know? What if McGregor goes in there and dusts? Let's say, okay, let's do this. Let's say McGregor goes back to one forty-five, and let's say fights Aldo and dusts him, and says, you know what? I'm not my my my. I'm not done at 155 yet. I'm not done. Could he get that fight? Maybe. You know, if he goes in there and looks really good against Aldo, and a fight that goes longer, and he and let's say he goes to four rounds, and McGregor's cardio looks phenomenal, and he shuts down any kind of jujitsu attacks and stuffs takedowns. You, you know, he, it might be the kind of rehabilitative performance that would at least enough for him to get the momentum going for a lightweight um, title shot. But again, you know how likely is that? I don't know. What if they do? Edgar next and he looks even worse you know I'm not suggesting that's the what's going to happen but you have to at least consider the possibility right um not good for Dos Anjos that's the truth that's the truth but you know what is he supposed to do a lot of these people are like well you should just fight injured right well I mean if you can clear if you can make it through a medical clearance with a broken foot good on you you know you guys can hide a lot they can really uh, you know they can conceal things in these um meetings and checkups with doctors but they can't conceal everything and moreover, if you believe that you need something to win and that one thing or, you know, one of, let's say, a few things is taken away, um, you shouldn't fight. It just sucks that it happens that way for him. But I'm not going to believe these guys who was like, well, you, you should have done it. You should have just gone and fought. Why? And lose your title over a fight where you're performing to 50% of your ability? That doesn't seem like a very smart idea. Diaz had nothing to lose. What does he lose? He still gets paid no matter what. And if he had lost, he could have been like, hey, I was 11 days notice, of course. You know, what am I supposed to do? But, you know, that he won is even even better for him. But Dos Anjos had much more to lose. Even, even you know, yes, he lost the big payday. But what if he had the big, what would he, you know, you have to, have to ask Dos Anjos, what would you rather have, a huge payday and no title? Or your title and, you know, maybe, maybe a future payday down the road? I suspect he might do the, the latter, you know. All right. Um, by the way, I'm drinking the Mora. I've really given up diet soda for the most part. I mean, I'm not, I haven't gone cold turkey, but um, I don't drink it hardly at all. And I'm sleeping. Finally, finally, the last two days I've slept really well, and I feel so much better. 
but I'm still addicted to artificial sweeteners. So what are you going to do? Um, how was the web traffic for UFC 196 versus UFC 194? I'm curious on the difference. Um, I'm not going to go into any kind of numbers. I'm just going to say 196 was significantly bigger. Significantly. I think I think for me, 196 was the biggest um, traffic I've ever seen for an MMA fight. That's it. That's all I'll say. All right, true, false. Let's do one of these. We haven't done one of these yet. Uh, number one, true, false. Losing unbeatable Mystique is the biggest loss Conor McGregor suffered against Diaz. Uh, did he have an unbeatable Mystique? I guess the sum he did. Maybe, maybe true. Title defense against Edgar is McGregor's most dangerous fight at 145 due to Edgar's movement and durability. Yeah, let me, let's me let talk about this real quickly. Boy, um, you know what? Let me make an aside here because <laughs> it's just on my mind, and I, I got to get it off my shoulders. Have you seen the post-fight coverage of UFC 196 from the mainstream press articles? This, this will relate to your question about Edgar versus McGregor or Aldo versus McGregor in just a second. It is related. I cannot believe that people are putting their bylines on some of these articles. To call them embarrassing would be the euphemism of all euphemisms. I have been reading, unfortunately, some of the most clueless analysis that is imaginable post UFC 196 that goes for Holly Holm that goes for Conor McGregor and that goes for the UFC generally it is amazing what a farrago of nonsense that has been published in the wake of and I cannot did, did I not get on this chat and say what on earth is ESPN doing putting Ramona Shelburne in roles that should be given to Brett Okamoto? What on earth are they doing? Why are they Why are they going back? Why are these mainstream press outlets going back to 2005 and pulling in random reporters who have a bigger name in generally and work in other sports into MMA to deal with MMA's greatest challenges and greatest athletes rather than the homegrown guys who understand it the best? And they do it, and every time they do it, it winds up being this entire tour of people just playing themselves in publication or on TV. It is unbelievable. And it happened again after UFC 196. People going out there and saying, uh, I've seen McGregor was never a good fighter or a great fighter or whatever. I've seen, um, you know, and even from Dana himself, which is so surprising that this was a huge mistake by Holly Holm. This has ruined the women's bantamweight division. What is Conor McGregor really going to do going forward? And it's like, it is, it is as if they are living in an alternate dimension. I am shocked. And I've been covering this sport a long time, and I cannot believe how bad this is. Where do you even start with this? And I'm sorry I got off on this tangent, but it just drives me crazy. Number one, I went to Mayweather Pacquiao. I covered that fight for seven full days. Let me explain something to you. That was as much of a commercial success as a single individual event is going to be, and it is nothing that you want to reproduce ever. That was the most phony event I've ever covered in my life. Not a single real boxing fan, for the most part, in that arena. 
I mean, Mark Ratner was in there. He's a real boxing fan. A couple other people, they're real boxing fans that happen to get tickets. The rest of them, not one. Weirdest vibe I've ever been to. It was a celebration of nothing. And it was put together as a consequence of, of, of... It is shocking to me that the mainstream pup press after that event goes out and says correctly for once, you know what? When it, it, there was nothing to this matchup, it was supposed to happen all this time ago. Um, this is what happens when promoters don't work together. This is what happens when guys try to manicure records. Some, some people get desperate. Some people are just trying to take fights at the right time just to make it look a certain way. And then when Holm and McGregor lose, they go out and say, why didn't they take these fights that made more sense for their careers? Why didn't they take or less? Why didn't they take fewer risks? Why didn't they? Why did UFC sanction this? Why didn't Holm wait until Ronda Rousey came back? Why did McGregor take this risk? So let me get this straight. When promoters basically just cheat you and give you fights that don't really mean a whole lot or way past their expiration date or aren't competitive, and when fighters very carefully pick their choices, and I don't blame them for doing that, but when they care, when they carefully do it, and when they manicure these identities and manicure these records and manicure these fights, you hate that because you know you're basically watching nothing. You're watching a setup. You're not watching what's really truly competitive at the right moment at the right time. And then when a promoter goes and does it, then you're then it's a mistake. I mean, my God, how many times have we talked about the UFC betting on themselves to win? And they're not going to win every time, of course. But when they did it at UFC 189, they won big. And when they did it at UFC 194, they also won big. Didn't come up for them at UFC 196 in that way. But it makes infinitely more sense to have a promoter who is willing to risk, excuse me, willing to risk those kinds of things in an effort to preserve some measure of integrity about this. This is mostly, not always CM Punk's around, but there's mostly going to be the best fighting the best in a way that is simply you cannot get out of the boxing world. I love boxing, but I'm sorry. There is so much pressure on those guys to be very selective and very careful, and ultimately that really does a disservice. And finally, the promotion that turns it around is now being criticized for it. What a joke. What a total and complete joke. Moreover, what is the real world, world impact? Conor McGregor is still the featherweight champion. Now, there is a real risk for him, to your point, about what they're going to do with this. Do they give him Aldo again? I think it's a pretty safe fight for him. Do they give him Edgar uh, when he comes back? I don't think it's a very safe fight for him. Now, that really you had to be very careful about. Uh, there are real, real consequences about that. But jumping up and waiting and taking a fight, even on, against another guy who's coming on short notice, all of a sudden, this is, this is the end of the world. All of a sudden, people want to stop seeing Conor McGregor? Nonsense. And if women's bantamweight, women's bantamweight has never been better. You have a bunch of great choices to go from. You can do home versus Tate 2 at UFC 200. You can have Tate versus Rousey 3. You can, you're can. you definitely, at some point, all of a sudden people don't want to see home versus Rousey 2, even under less than ideal circumstances. The only argument you could really make is, did you lose the huge mega pay-per-view buy rate you probably could have done if you had Holly Holm sit around for uh, a year and then go and fight Ronda Rousey. Yeah, did you lose that two million pay per view buy? Yeah, sure. Okay, you know what? That's not great. So what? So what? It is much more important to have the principled attitude that on some level the best should fight the best, and they should stay as active active as they as they themselves are willing. And that's it, it, inevitably that is going to have its drawbacks. But on balance, isn't that what you want as a consumer? 
And is it so disastrous for their bottom line that it's worth avoiding at all costs? No. Conor McGregor's next fight is going to be huge. And when Ronda Rousey comes back, the return of Ronda Rousey, the media darling, you don't think that's going to be a mega fight, especially against her hated rival, Amisha Tate? What planet are people living on? What you want is a promoter willing to do this kind of thing. That's what you, this is what you've been asking for. This is the corrected version of the way things used to be. This is the updated version of it. It's got its drawbacks, but on balance, that is the principle guiding things that makes it better for you and for me. And frankly, for the, for the sport generally, I don't begrudge guys who take, who, who want to take certain fights for themselves that, that are smarter. I, I will never get in the way of that. I understand that. But I'm also not going to get in the way of a promoter who is not a for, for that. And the two negotiating is what you really want. That's what you want. I understand that. I, 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 I get guys want to, to have some self-preservation. But when Holly Holm says, I don't want to sit around. I want to stay active. When Conor McGregor's like, I don't want to sit around. I want to be active. That's what That's what you want. That's what you want. You, if you are Floyd Mayweather and you are 49-0 and 0 in your career, you have gone your entire career, professional anyway, without losing. That only tells you one of two things. You didn't fight often enough and you didn't fight the right guys at the right time, period. There is no sport where people have sustained success like that throughout their career. If you fight the best often enough, you lose. That's just inevitable. That's the reality of things. And I think that reality, I would, I would suspect, would begin to dawn on the mainstream press. And yet they go out and say, this is a long-term disaster for the UFC. You have surrendered your right to comment on this sport forever. Forever. You just don't, you're just wrong. It's not even up for debate. <laughs> I just can't believe it. And then you still have a guy like John Jones, who is seems to be, we'll find out against Cormier in the rematch, because you know the first fight was still pretty competitive, who's basically going out there and just dominating people over and over and over again. Uh, like you want. He's becoming that guy. If you can't win in such a way to dominate people in the sport, like Silva did in his prime, like GSP did in his prime, you don't deserve the kind of fights that make you look that way. Either you can win them or you can't win them. And if you can't win them, let's see who can. And that's it. That's it. I cannot believe some of the stuff I've been reading. There was an entire article in the Sports Business Journal collecting this assortment of fail over and over and over again and i don't know what for the win is publishing over there at usa today i mean they're literally just making stuff up i mean not like lies or anything but just analysis like like just monkeys slamming their fingers into keyboards and hoping that it makes coherent letters and sentences it's it's amazing to me ufc 196 on its own terms was a great night and we lost what was hoped to be these major fights between McGregor at 170 or Holm versus Rousey 2 in terms of being a 2 million pay-per-view buy rate. But that will still sell a million buys the next time she fights. And when McGregor's still the featherweight champion, and if you couldn't earn the right to, to fight at welterweight, if you didn't earn the right to defend your title against Holm or against Rousey by beating Tate, then that's just what it is. On to the next thing. I am so glad that UFC takes that seriously. Three, GSP will be main event at UFC 200. I hope. I'll say true as a way of hoping. Tate beating Holm is the best thing to happen in terms of Rousey's career prospects. 
I'll say true, but I don't know how much longer she has left in this game. So it, in some sense, it may not matter in terms of how many fights she has left. But but certainly it's a benefit to her, right? Uh, Diaz gets a title shot at Dos Anjos at UFC 200. I have no interest in seeing that. I can grant that that was not Diaz even close to his best. Even close to his best. I don't really care to see that. Uh, you lost some respect for Aldo for his post after the McGregor lost. Are you kidding? I don't care at all. I mean, I don't love it, but I don't hate I'm Say what you want about Conor McGregor spent how long, how many years going out there and blasting people, calling them losers and traitors to their country and clowns and frauds. Sorry. If people go out there and call you bad names, oh, well, you're an adult. He's a big boy. He'll be all right. John Jones is going to beat Cormier worse in the rematch. I think so, so I'll say true, but I don't know. We'll see. The McGregorization, i.e. consistent trash talk of seemingly every upcoming title fight, big fight is off-putting. That's true. There's a limit. This it's trash talk is great when it's great, but it's not great when it's universal. Rory McDonald loses to Thompson. I don't know. I haven't thought about that one yet, but that's really interesting. McGregor losing is the worst thing to happen to the fight at your natural weight movement. Um, it's a setback. It's a setback. We'll do one more of these true false McGregor edition. McGregor's loss to Diaz raises questions about his cardio. False. McGregor's power will translate to 155 just fine. Done appropriately, I think so. True. McGregor, McGregor would be wise to reduce the number of spinning kicks. That's definitely true. This is exactly the type of loss that can make a fighter better if he analyzes it correctly. This is the true fact about Conor McGregor. He is a guy who has um, historically, especially since that second submission loss when he had, has used setback as a, um, as a catalyst for reinvention. Right. So you look at that second loss where he really just devoted himself to his craft and became who he was and found his offensive identity and the things he liked. And I really also believe that ACL surgery and that ACL repair really helped him begin to understand his body, how it functioned, how it moved. It motivated him to return because he didn't want to be outside of the action. There was just a lot of things that had gone you know, wrong for him that he really find a way to turn lemons into lemonade. You really have to kind of respect that for him. Now, can he do that with this one? We're going to find out. But there is at least a demonstrated record of this guy having both a physical setback and a career setback and then finding ways to take that you know, um, low point and not just put it behind him, but use it as a springboard to achieve new highs. Uh, let's see. Besides McGregor himself, Dos Anjos is the most negatively affected by McGregor's loss. Probably McGregor's star power would only be diminished if he suffers two or three decisive losses in quick succession. Uh, I won't say his only be diminished, but certainly if he got two or three decisive losses back to back, that would be the problem. Now that, that was asked, which way are they going to go? Are they going to go McGregor versus Edgar or McGregor versus Aldo? Now that is a tough call for UFC. They got to figure that out personally, because I don't think the Aldo fight was very competitive. He should get the Edgar fight. The Edgar beating Mendez in the way that he did just seems like it's much more appropriate. That being said, I don't like Edgar's chances again, or I don't like um, McGregor's chances against Edgar very much. So anything's possible. I'm not saying McGregor can't win. Don't get all crazy, but certainly um, that's a very difficult choice for them. Or do you say, hey, maybe, and it's crazy to think about Aldo as a tune up fight, but let's just think just outside of that. Should McGregor take a bit of a tune-up fight in that sense of taking the easier one of the two to get himself back on the on the on the on the road to redemption? Um, I could understand that argument as well. So we'll see what they do. But you know, generally, why didn't they just have Holmes sit around for a year? 
I don't know, because that's not necessarily good for her because that's the, really the preservation of the dollar over the preservation of the integrity of the women's um, division and the, and the title generally. It's much better to stay busy. People are like, oh, she should have just sat around and taken the fight. I'm not saying that would have been bad for her in, in the sense of her pocketbooks, but you know, she was winning that fight before, you know, up until the very end. Misha Tate gets credit because she dug it out um, in the way that she did, but you know, she was on. She was well on her way to proving that she was she was correct. And you know, are you going to dismiss her chances in a rematch? Because I wouldn't. So, but more to the point is what you want. Well, what did you want out of this? Did you want to be competitive? Did you, did you want to stay active, or did you just want a record that looked good? Because you know, because you pulled the wool of consumers' eyes a lot of time. There are consumers being like, "We just want to see magic. We don't want to see the real thing." We don't want to see how the sausage is made. We just want to see the show. There we go. Dana said Holly made a mistake taking the fight. I thought it was kind of odd to hear Dana saying basically given really bad advice and should have never taken the fight. I understand that Ronda fight would have netted her a lot more money, but in a long time to wait, how much money do you think she lost? She probably lost millions, like a lot of millions um, by doing that. And again, that's not an insignificant thing to look past. Believe me. Um, at some point, you know, what is, what, and again, it also depends on your career priorities. What is more important for you to have money when this is over, a lot of money when this is over, or to have some money, but also some of the, you know, to have achieved some of the things in your career that really meant a lot to you. And you might find different answers for different people, you know, but um, clearly it's, it's a priority for Holly to, to have those kinds of achievements and to do those kinds of things. Um, you know, money is probably very important for her too, of course, it's important for everyone, but you know, it's, I, I find that very surprising from Danny. I mean, they, they, I mean, they gave her the fight, right? Like you signed off on it as a promoter. You promoted it as a promoter. Um, you know, waiting around for Holly, uh, waiting around for Ronda for a year on the shelf. I don't know. That's the smartest idea. You know, cause what if Holly gets hurt and then they have to put an interim title in there and everything gets put askew that way. Um, and then what if Rousey was so devastated she lost to Tate? Well, then you lost that too, you know? Um, Right now, you at least have some interesting permutations independent of that. And more to that point, um, um, you know, they, they're the ones that made the Holm versus Rossi fight to begin with. You know, I mean, it was a calculated gamble, but it was one that blew up in their face. I can see why they'd be a little more gun-shy after the fact, but they've got a record of making fights that weren't necessarily the most awesome for their people that they cared about, too. Like, if the manager made a mistake, then UFC's made mistakes in the same kind of way, Right. So, you know, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a bit of an issue where I think all the parties involved, if what's your priority is the preservation of a record and an identity, um, all of them have made some mistakes in that regard. No, none of them um, can claim to, to, to be free. But I, I would rather live in a sport where, where Rousey had to defend against title challengers regularly. I would rather be in a sport where your, your champion stays active. And if your champion can't win, then your champion can't win. They're just not that person. But... I think that's better for the long term. And this is not a case where they like almost not conscripted to sign. Like we need you to take this fight against Tate. You know, like if it was so, I mean, financially there was probably a lot lost, but she asked for this, you know, this is, you're giving the fighter what they want. This is not management, you know, forcing things down their throat. Like they, they requested it and they got what they wanted. And in the end, um, this also helped Burgeon. This is the other part. Like it wasn't like UFC promoted shows with Don King and all the Don King fighters won and all the UFC fighters lost. 
they're all promoted by the UFC. The UFC wins no matter who wins, in a sense. Sometimes it's better if certain fighters win in certain fights, but Tate's promoted by UFC. Tate's a decent star in the sport. Tate versus Rousey 3 is intriguing. Nate Diaz, this is the push he's been looking for. This is good for those guys. Those guys work for UFC. That means it's good in some level for UFC. There might be a net loss in some ways about the monetary gain, but they made $600 million last year. I'm not... I can't believe people are like, we want the inauthentic money-grabbing events, not the more authentic, still money-generating events, but maybe less so. What? All right, let's see. Let's keep going. Let's see here. Uh, Misha Tate's improvements. While Misha Tate's striking technique is fairly sloppy, her ring craft seemed drastically improved against Holmes. She moved through the cage a lot more intelligently than the old running into the center of the cage and throwing wide hooks, which Jack's like a criticizer for in the past. You agree that Tate's ring craft looked a lot better, perhaps even to the point that it influences your take on Tate Rousey 3. Or am I just doing a little mental gymnastics to fool myself into thinking the trilogy fight might actually be interesting? The other factor to consider about uh, Rousey's return is what she looks like when she comes back. You know, because mentally there's every reason to believe that that event was traumatizing for her. um, And how she responds to that trauma is going to be a a very interesting thing to see. I make no predictions about it. Just it's something I'm looking for. Um, as for Tate, there's no doubt about it, she's gotten better. Now, there's still some issues with her striking. Sometimes her, I think she can be a little slow. Um, but in terms of tightening up deficiencies in her defense, she has come quite a long way, a very long way, very impressively so. Um, the way in which she tries to corral fighters, the way in which she measures distance, the way in which she approaches distance that can be dangerous for different kinds of things, the way in which she sets up her her, uh, her takedowns, the way in which she adjusts her takedowns, the way in which she times her takedowns, that's really gotten good. Now, that's more offensive, of course, but um, you know, you got a pressure fighter like home, you have to work around her offense to make that work. And so um, she's really tightened that up. She's just gotten better about the way in which she positions herself and approaches um, dangerous spots in a fight. She also has a lot to work on, but yeah, I think there's no, I mean, there's no getting around. Everyone wants to talk about like, well, Misha Tate's tenacity and perseverance, and these are all true, totally laudable things. I don't take anything away from her in that capacity, but what I guess what I would say is, you know, let's look at technically some of the things she's doing better now. And and, and again, uh, I mentioned I was going to do the Tuesday morning uh, analyst. I'm going to push it back to next Monday. Only because if I don't, there won't be a podcast that day. But um, we'll go over some of these things that you see here from her. And um, not just individual exchanges, but some of her finishing on the ground was like effortless. You know, effortless. Um, And home put up a good fight too, you know. But in the end, there was just too much much for her to answer for. You know, I really believe in that third Tate and Rousey fight. It's going to be really interesting because Tate is willing to accommodate Rousey on her terms in terms of the grappling exchanges, you know, she will take her down and try to pass and, and work like that. And I'm just not sure that works for her because um, R- Rousey's singular focus on arm bars, while predictable, 
if you're trying to launch offense too, makes you more susceptible to counters. And what Holm was trying to do with Rousey is just break things off and step away and separate. Um, the reason I think Holm got uh, submitted ultimately is that when Holm was going up against Rousey, she really only had to worry about Rousey's arm bars. Rousey doesn't do arm drags to take the back, and she doesn't do head and arm triangles, and she doesn't do heel hooks. She doesn't do any of that stuff. She just goes for arm bars, and she mostly goes for arm bars from the guard. She did some from Mount, too, but even though she'll start from the guard. Um, she's a Juju Katami girl through and through, you know, and she's obviously very deadly with it, but that's very different than what Misha Tate tried to do, which is flatten you out, threaten the pass. Oh, am I threatening the pass? Now I'm threatening the Kimura. Oh, am I threatening the Kimura? Now I'm threatening the pass again. Oh, now I'm threatening a back take. Oh, now I'm threatening a head and arm triangle. It really just spread the defense of Holly Holm even thinner, and she didn't really know what to do with it or how to, how to counteract it, and um, she paid for it. That's very different than if you're knowing this person is really only going to do one thing, probably only from one position, and they're extremely good at it, but I can just focus mostly on it. You don't really have to worry about Rousey choking you. I'm not saying you shouldn't train it if you're going to be in a camp for her, but you know, obviously the majority of your time needs to be spent on your armbar defense. If all you're worried about is armbar defense and then defense generally, it's a lot easier to prepare for than if your whole grappling game is getting audited. Armbar defense is armbar defense. It's not grappling defense generally being audited, although it can feel that way sometimes. Um, and that's, I think, a, a key difference between the two. Valentina Shevchenko. She started really slow against Nunez. Um, I think she lost the, the what was it, the first or second round by 10-8. It wasn't that dominant. However, she came on real strong in the third and definitely got that round. So my questions are if uh, Nunez versus Shevchenko was a five-round fight, do you feel Shevchenko would have won? And who would you like to see her fight next? She reminded me a lot of McGregor in that fight. Not Shevchenko, but Nunez, or Nunes, however you want to properly pronounce it. Um when McGregor is light on his feet and full of energy, he really does do a good job of slipping punches and then landing his own. He does a really good job of trunk movement and staying out of range and dodging things. He does. He's really good at it, actually. And when he gets tired, when that goes away, when those reflexes go away because you're exhausted, the whole thing comes crashing down all at once. Nunez is a bit like that. Now, she's much more up here. I don't mean to say that they defend shots in the same way. But, you know, she was moving around a lot, showing a lot of different targets. She was staying active with a variety of different offensive weapons. Obviously, she has a, a, a an advantage on the ground. But the minute she slows, she became a stationary target quickly. It's amazing how they go from, like, hard to hit, hard to read, hard to time, to tired and hittable. Like, it's almost instantaneous once they hit that wall. They hit a wall, and then they're just there for the pickings. And that's when Shevchenko really began to mix it up and let her offense go. I'm not saying she couldn't have done that before, but it just – she didn't for whatever reason. So um, if that had gone five rounds, the answer is yes because Amanda Nunes, you know, when she – what was the first thing she said after she got interviewed? She was like, this is a big test for me. I wanted to see if I can go three rounds, and I did it, and it was great. And she's right, and she deserves credit for it. But she definitely was very, very tired in that third, and when she gets tired, her offense goes away quickly, quickly. And really her defense doesn't become – I mean, part of her defense 
is her offense. It is her moving and setting up things and being unpredictable and and that giving rise to her ability to strike. It's also it's a def- has a defensive component as well, and both of them get shut down when she gets tired. She gets very flat-footed, and she becomes much easier to pick off in a very noticeable, automatic, quick kind of way. Um, that's kind of what happened to McGregor. Once he, once he was unable to monitor his distance and really launch to the punches he wanted to and duck and dodge and use trunk movement, the show closed for him pretty quickly. Can Connor really compete at 170? I go back to what I think uh, I said earlier in the chat in many ways, um, borrowing from what Joe Lazan said. Uh, I'm not giving up on him moving to 155. I think 170 might be a bit too much, but even then, only if he does it gradually and really like takes the time to put the weight on correctly and use it correctly. Um, if he doesn't, then I don't really know. Are you sick of fantasy matchups and true-false question posts? I like true-false, but I am sick of fantasy matchup questions. What's next for Nate and Nick? We'll see about Nick and what the sport looks like when he comes back. Again, if they don't want to give Nate to Lawler, that's fine. I understand that there are there are deserving welterweight contenders who would need and would you like to believe that they're ahead in the queue. I, I in no way challenge that. I don't think it would be the worst call in the world to give them that fight. Uh, and if not that, then there's got to be some other, these guys who can float between 155 and 170 like Nate, some other kind of interesting fight like that. Because to me, a fight against Dos Anjos is not very interesting. You want to book Nate in competitive, tough fights. Um, and if he, no, if he wants a Dos Anjos fight, that's fine too. But, um, you know, let's see. Nate is, look, if a fighter is a money weight fighter, then give him money weight fights. But Holly Holm is not a money weight fighter. I mean, she she would be if the cyborg thing was there, but it's not there. So she's not. She wanted to be a champion. She wanted to defend her title. Then let her do that. But if a guy doesn't want to do that, and he's not interested in that kind of thing, then don't. Now, if he wants the RDA rematch, I say you give it to him. But to me, it just feels like a lot. Can Nate Diaz beat Robbie Lawler? I don't think that's the craziest thing in the world. You know, Nate Robbie Lawler has been good, but he's been in a lot of wars recently, and he's got some liabilities that... I wonder if DS could take advantage of. I don't, I don't think it's the craziest thing in the world. 209. All right, 209 indeed. Look, Diaz and Tate fought incredibly well this past weekend, but which one impresses you more? Um, hmm. Probably Tate. Tate had to do more to win. She was shut down for three rounds, almost. Well, first, third, and fourth, she was shut down. Second, she got her she got her licks in, and then the fifth, she was losing that round. Um, before she did that, I was she had to do more to win. She had to be incredibly patient with her offense. She had to find just the right timing. She had to have a you know she had to have the mental wherewithal to know what the right opportunity was to strike and to seize it. Uh, when the moment was there, I mean, strike while the iron was hot, and she did. And you know, whereas McGregor certainly ha- or, uh, Diaz certainly had to weather a storm and be patient himself, but there was, and he took more damage. But you know, when the wall came tumbling down, it crashed all at once. Basically, um, that's not the case with Holm. She had to go in there and and take it from her. Uh, it's a little bit different. So certainly I do not in any way underestimate Diaz's win. I did a full podcast to it. I really encourage you to go look 
and we're going to do another one for Holman Tate, but that's not Holman Tate. Tate had to, I mean, she had to find that thing, you know, whereas Diaz just had to kind of wait for a little bit and it kind of came to him. Drinking game. Watch Tate and Holm and drink every time Mike Goldberg mentions Ronda. I bet he's a nice guy, but his commentary is so bad. Y'all know how I feel about this. Did you notice that there was no face to pain? Was that not the greatest thing since sliced bread? Was that not amazing? I truly love that. It made me so happy. There was no face. They did that DMX intro. It was like, it's like, wow, we have a, a product that is from a production standpoint, maturing in all the right ways and has matured in all the right ways in other areas. The graphics packages are interesting. The way in which it's shot is better. The in-house production and the facility is as good as it's ever been. And then they still had this baggage. It's like face the pain is like this, the tramp stamp tattoo that you never got lasered off that you got when you were 19. <laughs> That's what that is. It's like, ah, you know, you've, you, you've, since you were 19, you've become a business professional. You make six figures. You have a nice family. You pay all your taxes on time. You look great. You stay fit. Um, you don't drink and drive, but you still got this tramp stamp tattoo. Laser that thing off, man. It's not doing you any favors. Trust me, it is not doing you any favors. What is your favorite fight in UFC history? If you can't come up with one that was your absolute favorite, then how about top five? I had the most fun at Lesnar versus Carwin, I think. Not saying it's my favorite fight, but when I had the most fun, uh, Lesnar-Carwin for sure. Uh, we already kind of answered what's next for Conor McGregor. Ronda versus Misha versus Holm versus Kat Zingano in a Hell in a Cell match. If that was a possibility, which it never would be, who would you pick? Well, I don't know what a Hell in a Cell match is, so I won't. Happening or another way, there's also the other thing is Kat Zingano. You know, you go back and you look at, look, when is MMA really fun? A couple of times. It's, you always going to want, you, you know, look, it is great when you have a dominant champion like a St. Pierre or a Silva or a Jones, right? The, 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 that's always great. And if you could get that in, Women's bantamweight, that would be great too, but there's no woman right now who can reassert themselves in that way. There's a lot of parity in there. But there can also be a lot of fun when there's parity. You know, the light heavyweight division was built off these guys who had these runs, but also because the runs kind of came to an end or they were difficult to maintain. Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell and Tito and Vitor all kind of taking turns on each other. Then over in Pride, you had Little Nog and Shogun and Rampage and Vanderlei and Arona. Um, and all these different guys taking turns on each other, and it created these big personalities in these big fights together. We look back on that as the heyday of light heavyweight because there were so many interesting guys. That's what made it awesome. And then now everyone is saying, "Well, we don't want we don't want women's bantamweight to be interesting." I I would like it to be interesting. Yeah, you don't want so much turnover that everyone's the same, but I don't think that's what you're going to get. I think eventually it's going to settle itself at least a little bit for a little bit longer. That's the way it mostly happens all the time, anyway. Tapping or going to sleep? A lot of people are criticizing Connor for tapping rather than going to sleep like Holly did. Was there a difference between the two chokes? Uh, not really. Choke, I mean, you know, I'm sure there was a slight difference, but it seemed as though Nate's forearm was across Connor's windpipe, making it more than a purely blood choke. No. In fact, it was actually off center. It was much more of a blood choke. 
Um, also, what's your general opinion on tapping rather than going to sleep? There is nothing shameful about tapping ever, except when you do it from opposite side half guard on a non-Von Flew choke that's actually just a head and arm triangle. That aside, um, <laughs> well, you know, again, if you're a UFC level fighter, if you're just a regular donk, it's no big deal. If you're a regular donk, there's no big deal to tapping. If you want to be a UFC level fighter, there are some issues, but this is not one where I consider it a real deal. It's not. I mean, Connor was was done. And let me just say something about Connor's jiu-jitsu because I saw people being like, Connor's jiu-jitsu is so terrible. It's really not that terrible. First of all, he hit that kudu kudu guard sweep in the second round, which again, I went over in the um, Monday morning analyst. If you haven't seen it, he ha- he uses this, frankly, very esoteric guard. Uh, some of Salo Hibero's guys use it. It's called the C-U-R-U-C-U-R-U C-U-R-U-C-U-R-U guard. Kudu kudu guard. Okay? And he uses it all the time and uh, or he was used in this fight anyway, and he did it no gi. It's usually a, a gi only kind of thing, and it's like an overhook single leg X guard is basically what you would call it. And he sweeped Nate Diaz with that thing, and that doesn't mean his jujitsu is amazing, but I don't know a lot of guys who do that, and I know a lot of good guys. They don't. That's 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 a that's that's sophisticated guard play a little bit there. And the other part about it is when he got tired when Nate Diaz was okay. So here's the thing. What's the difference between what Sage Northcutt did against Brian Barberina and what Conor McGregor did against Nate Diaz? Here's the difference. Sage Northcutt made different choices at different intervals that someone does when they don't know what the right thing to do is. That's very different than what Conor McGregor did. Conor McGregor was slow and non-responsive, but mostly what he was doing was trying to play catch-up to Nate's progression. So he, Nate would lock up the guillotine, and Connor would try to go around the corner. Nate stopped him with that single-leg hook on the bottom. Connor tried to raise his base to do it, and then he got turned. And as he got turned, he tried to roll through it. As he tried to roll through, he got trapped. As he got trapped, he couldn't stop the pass because there was nothing there to help him keep the frame up there to keep the pass from going. Once the frame happened, he tried to buck. He couldn't really buck because he couldn't get his hips off the ground. In other words, he didn't make like the wrong choices. He just made them kind of slow and in a very lethargic way. He didn't do things that people who don't know what to do, do. So everyone's like, oh, his BJJ was terrible. First of all, Nate's BJJ is excellent. And second of all, mm, I'm not sure that's true. Now, when he was against Mendez, he didn't do sophisticated guard play at all. Like, in that fight, he didn't look all that great. All I'm saying is, I'm not here to tell you that McGregor's jiu-jitsu is amazing. I- I'm really not. But this idea that it's some tremendous liability against most guys, uh, maybe against RDA, that's different. But against most guys, mm, I, the, the evidence to me is very inconclusive in that regard. I am not telling you it's awesome. Oh, he's going to go out and sub Frankie Edgar. He is not going to sub Frankie Edgar. Trust me. Not unless Edgar is badly rocked or something. Just straight up grappling for grappling, he's not going to sub Frankie Edgar. It's not what I'm saying. But everyone's saying, this guy needs to go back. He's a white belt. White belt's no better. Mm, that's not true. He did the things you're basically supposed to do, or he did the things you could expect someone who knows jiu-jitsu to do. He just did them, A, second to Nate. He was trying to follow Nate's lead. That's a hard place to be whenever you're trying to win. And he just did them kind of slow. That's not the same thing as making weird choices about where to put your hands and stuff when you're trying to stop a pass or relieve pressure on a choke. Very, very different. Who's the biggest star now, Nate or Nick? You know what? Nate has had, I think Nate's bigger now. Nate's had, I mean, this this win is big. It's real big for him, you know. 
and I don't think Nick ever won a fight this big. Um, in terms of you know, the promotional size of it, so we'll see. What'd you make of all the booze DC got? Boy, DC, I think, has been taken aback by this, you know. Um, essentially, it seems to me that the booze stem from the fact that they view him holding that title as inauthentic. And because of that, and because they view John as the real champion, um, the booze. You know, uh, even if people have mixed feelings or bad feelings about John, that somehow rubs them the wrong way. That he's some sort of like perpetual imposter. I'm not saying that that's what he is. I'm saying that's what some people seem to believe. And um, and I think that has taken Daniel Cormier aback. I think he thought once he got this far and you know defended it against Gustafson that this would basically all go away. But John has found a way. Very interestingly, and bringing that belt was very clever of him to the press conference has found out a way to drive a wedge between Cormier and the fan base in a way I, I don't think he expected, and I wasn't sure. I, I kind of expected a little bit of it, of course, but not to this level. This has been um, surprisingly high. How did you get out of jury duty? I didn't. I had to do it for two days sucked that is the third time in six years i've been picked can you believe that you only get a two-year reprieve in dc after you do it so you do it you get two years off after that what the f man wonder boy versus roy mcdonald now that this matchup is official what is your take on it i haven't thought about this at all i have to think more about it i have to go back watch some tape on rory it's gonna be interesting uh, it's 2.15. Let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. All right. Breaking. Shogun is out. Glover Teixeira now faces Rashad Evans. It's a tough fight for Rashad, boy. Because he was going to get the takedown before. And Shogun is no bad. He's not bad off his back, but he's a little bit rickety and old. Teixeira still got some vitality left in him. That's a tough fight for him. Uh, UFC 200 main card. Connor versus Frankie. Robbie versus Tyron. Misha versus Ronda. Thoughts? Well, Ronda's not coming back, so that's the end of that. Uh, true, false. If uh, a home Rousey, no title is bigger than Rousey Tate. Ooh. They're competitively close. That's an interesting question, though. Rousey Tate becomes bigger than Rousey home if Tate beats home again. No, I don't think that changes much. Not a lot, anyway. True or false, Nate Diaz gets popped for marijuana. I'm just going to say false as thinking about this positively. How long before MSM start hiring competent journalists to cover MMA? Well, many places have. SB Nation, as a matter of fact, have done that. But there are just some of these really, really large outlets, you know, that just, I, I don't know what they're thinking. It's like, you've got people in-house who can do this job. You know that, right? And they're good at it. And if you, you promote them correctly and you give their work some shine, you'll be rewarded for this. Like, I won't be having this comment on my live chat and other people have noticed it as well, but they seem to not understand how that works at all. It is it is it is amazing to me how poorly the mainstream press so often covers MMA by their own design. It is shocking. That 2016 we're still talking about this. How is that possible? This was a problem you had in 2005. 
How annoying is it that Goldberg keeps bringing up Rousey's name during the home fight? Um, exceedingly, but that of all his sins, that is comparatively the least. After Misha's win, where does this leave Nunes, Zingano, and Pena in the bantamweight mix? Um, they're going to have to one of the maybe Nunes and Pena can fight each other for a number one title shot, number one contender, or you know uh, put Zingano back in the mix in some capacity. Zingano versus Pena that'd be kind of awesome, wouldn't it? Uh, Luke, if Edgar gets the title shot. Do you see Frankie's constant movement and footwork eventually fatiguing McGregor? Fatiguing, I don't know, but eventually overwhelming him, yes. Will they let Ronda come back and retire after winning the belt if she beats Misha? Well, she might do it on her own. Um, Why does Dana take shots at people who don't go along with him? Really? I have to answer that. Uh, True false. John Jones will headline UFC 200. I think it's headline. I'll say false. True false. RDA versus McGregor may never happen. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. It may never happen. Are there any records in MMA that you consider unbreakable? Probably not. Where is that Tuesday morning analyst, bro? Push back to Monday so that there is a podcast next Monday. In your opinion, is listening to podcasts and transcribing quotes from them a viable form of journalism? It can be, if you're transcribing things that people say. Dan Steinberg of the Washington Post does this all the time, and he has a very successful journalist. Is it a bad look for RDA to celebrate when he pulled out? It is not of any consequence one way or the other. McGregor fans getting all sensitive about people pushing back on him. This, is, this was inevitable. This was completely inevitable. You knew this was coming. You cannot go out there and say the things that guys are very reluctant to say about opposition and the sport generally. And then when you lose, particularly when you lose and you get finished quickly, uh, and then be like, well, you shouldn't, you, you know, everyone needs to maintain their, their discipline here. I, I would agree that people shouldn't do those things, but they're going to do those things. You just need to be tougher. That's just how that goes. If you're a McGregor fan and you're upset on social media that people are clowning your guy, my recommendation to you would be to get a big old, uh, you can go down to your local, um, you know, grocery store, maybe your CVS or Walgreens, and go buy some straws and suck it up. That's what I would recommend for you. Because you've been surfing on him being mean and cruel to everyone else all this time. Well, you didn't think you were going to need an umbrella because it never really rains. Well, now it's raining, so deal with it. Uh, will UFC 200 break the 1.6 pay-per-view buy record? I think it still has the possibility to do that. I don't know that it will. What do you think of uh, Darian Caldwell's performance at Bellator MMA? You know, it's unfortunate, and I gave him a shout-out on my podcast on Monday. It's unfortunate that we're not talking about this more. Did y'all see Darian Caldwell just give Joe Warren the business? Wow, man. Wow. You know, I was so impressed by that because, you know, he's still a prospect. He's still developing. He's a little bit older and longer in the tooth than, you know, I would like him to be during Caldwell. But the athleticism, grappling clearly comes natural to him. He's an athletic finisher. Golly, man, it was so impressive. If you haven't gone see it, and it's free. You can get it on Spike's website right now for free. You can just go look. You don't have to have a cable subscription. Go do it, man. It is it is tremendous, super tremendous. Um. Is the UFC somewhat relieved McGregor lost? I seriously doubt the relieved he lost. Uh, is that for the win article, the one that's like, Conor McGregor was never a good fighter. Is that worse than the donk that said Ronda Rousey and Floyd need to fight? No, that that was, uh, what was his name? Clay Travis. I think that is all-time 
buffoonery. Um, what do you make of John Jones's reception at the press conference of the booze in DC? Seems like the the effort he's putting in to say he's apologetic for his past sins is um, going well. And again, Cormier, until he beats Jones, is just going to be in this position where bizarrely, um, after all the negative things the fan base has said about John Jones, they have rallied to his defense on this issue in a way that I, I, I think, I mean, again, I expected it a little bit, but to the extent that it's gone has been very surprising. Cormier just simply hasn't taken command of the position that he's in. Uh, what do you think of the tap versus no tap discussion? There is no tap versus no tap discussion. There's nothing wrong with tapping, and that's the discussion. Uh, Conor McGregor may be the most effective at lightweight. Do you think he can be a serious competitor at welterweight too? Uh, let's back off on that, shall we? True false. Did Conor McGregor plan to fight both Diaz and RDA, knowing he could pick Diaz if RDA pulled out? I don't know. Did you see Ronda's heavy bag video? I have not. Um, true, false. Kat Zingano faces Holly Holm in her return fight. That would be a super dangerous fight for Holly Holm. But if I took, if she took it, I would have tremendous respect for her. Super match with Nate versus GSP at two hundred. Who on earth wants to see that? GSP has tremendous takedowns and and first rate submission defense. No thanks. And he's much bigger. So what else we got here? Uh, I got one from Nate Corey here. Here we go. Address that later. All right, let's see. Does Woodley deserve a title shot? I think we went over this before. He seems to always fold when the pressure is at its highest and got the shot by default since Hendricks was able to fight. His big wins are the fight where Condit got injured for the second round against them and a decision out of, for out of shape Gastelum. I think he should be fighting the Brown Maya winner and the title eliminator. That or um, you know, maybe the winner of Rory versus Steven Thompson if they don't want to give that person the title shot. But before I was leaning heavily in his favor, but it's one of those things where due to inactivity, the kind of the we've talked about this before too, the division just kind of moves on without you. And it's no one's fault other than it's not like if you can't compete or whatever the reason may be, when the division moves on, it just moves on. And uh and even if you're not injured, it can move on just in the in the blink of an eye. Uh, a couple guys get a couple big wins, and it just changes everyone's perspective. And I think that's kind of the, the space he's in. If I were him, I would get out there and you know, if you, you know, try and get the title shot. But if you can't get it, man, you got to get out there. You got to fight someone big. You know, you got to reinsert yourself into the discussion. Question: Connor's backlash versus Ronda's backlash. Seems to me, I've heard others say so as well. That, that while the backlash against Connor, now that he's was lost, was expected, it is less in quantity and far less in venom. And the backlash Ronda got. Personally, I can't help but attribute this to the perception people have about how, quote, a woman should act, quote, versus a man. Both have been heavy on trash talk, sometimes disrespectful towards opponents, and were ultra confident. I first asked myself if it was how they each handled loss, but honestly, the venom against Ronda started before the post-fight presser did. Do you see any truth to the idea that Ronda got it worse because she is a woman? That's interesting. 
I uh, I haven't I haven't thought about it in those terms, but that's a really great question. I can say I agree with your generalization that there's been some backlash to McGregor for sure, but it hasn't been as much and it hasn't been quite as venomous. Although shout outs to the person on Reddit who made the video of Connor doing a bunch of mo- like motion workouts with Ido Portal in the park under the uh, sound of silence from uh, Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack. That was kind of interesting. That was funny. Um, is it because she's a woman? Huh? That is something I'd have to think about. It's a very interesting question. A very interesting question. I'm sure there are going to be some people who say, no, there's no way. But I definitely think there's part of it. I also think that Rousey's a bit of a, or at least she was heading into that fight, a bit of a bigger celebrity than McGregor and therefore subject to a little bit more scrutiny. She was also doing some crazy things where, you know, the whole Travis Brown thing is just, you know, it, you're not going to get a lot of good publicity from that. Let's put it that way. Um, and, you know, just hanging up on MMA media during conference calls and stuff like that, you know. She just, I think, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I think McGregor was polarizing, but still, you know, McGregor's weird. He's at times polarizing, but he's generally a galvanizing figure. He does have more detractors now than he had before, and he certainly had detractors before the fight, but I felt like he wasn't nearly as divisive as Ronda. Now, is she divisive because she's naturally more divisive, or is she divisive in part because she's a woman? That's a very interesting question. It's a great question, and I, I... I need to think about it before I give an answer, but that's really, it's, it's an important observation that we should give some, um, some thought to it. It does seem like, and I think uh, Richard Deitch wrote an article where he talked about, I think what seven sports reporters have to deal with in the course of doing their jobs and the amount of harassment that they get. Like, certainly if I'm asking which of my colleagues get the most harassment on social media, I mean, I get harassed. People get harassed. Everyone gets harassed. But the vitriol, I definitely see more like uh, women getting it than men, for sure, for sure. But this is, yeah, I, I have to think about it. It's it's a really good question. Then someone's like, no, it's not true. Although Rousey's an insufferable cow. If you're calling her an insufferable cow, you're not letting credit to your argument that it has nothing to do with sexism. More questions about DC and Jones. Do you think there could be a GSP versus Nate Diaz surprise at 200? I'm not saying they won't do it, but that I don't care about that fight. You know, Diaz versus Lawler, even the smaller Diaz, that's interesting to me on some level. Versus GSP, I don't know. The Stockton slap. Is there any technical merit to Nate's open-handed strikes other than inflicting psychological damage? Can you do a technique talk about the Stockton slap? Okay, so uh, cheap plug. My radio show today is at 4 p.m. on Sirius XM 93. I'm going to have Richard Perez on. So we're going to ask him, is there any technical benefit to the slap? I will make sure I get that question in. Thank you. UFC 209, could this be beyond our wildest dreams? Who fights and why? It's a shame that the Diaz boys won't be awake for, or awake, won't be alive for UFC 420 either. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I 
Yeah, here's a question about For the Win. Luke, what did you think of that For the Win article that very deftly pointed out that Conor McGregor is a mediocre to good but not great fighter? I thought it was totally unassailable. Would love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know. I mean, there's certainly, look, this is certainly a moment to revisit the idea that some of the accolades and praises we had heaped on McGregor uh, deserve to be you know revisited and maybe uh, dialed back a notch. But it is not cause to say um, this is a guy who has uh, a reputation that you know uh, is built on a house of cards. You know that he was—he's just only good. Yo, he stretched Jose Aldo in 13 seconds, um, and even beating on Chad Mendez on short notice was still. We can go back and talk about the ways in which it was impressive. And he beat Max Holloway. And he beat—I mean, I can just go. He beat really good guys. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you guys. Like, again, it's the same thing about McGregor's BJJ. Like, the guy loses once. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, this win is not good for him. There's no argument about it. Like, it's certainly a moment to have some grounded discussion about McGregor. But this idea that, like, all of a sudden, you know, you know, he is, we, we've been fooled for the last two, three years is just sort of ridiculous. Uh, okay. Time for me to go. Uh, do me a favor, if you haven't already. Give this video a thumbs up. I would really appreciate that. Thank you so much for watching. You can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. By the way, again, 4 p.m. right after the show is over. I've got my radio show today. We're going to have Richard Perez on, so I'm going to ask him all kinds of questions about the Diaz boxing style. Uh, cheap plug for that. This podcast, iTunes.com slash promotional malpractice. And uh, any questions you may have, please send them my way, Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. By the way, I have still been talking to the T-shirt designer. Had a call with him this week. So for folks who've been asking what happened to that, that's still in motion. I said it was going to take time, and it is. We're going to get it worked out. So thank you for your patience. Thank you for watching. Stay tuned to MMAfighting.com for more coverage. This whole week, we're going to have Invicta and World Series of Fighting coverage. Really appreciate you guys watching. And until next time, stay frosty.